This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson, back in London, back from Berlin. Marcus Ashworth is joining me this evening. Alex has the day off. We have much, much to talk about. Uh, what we've seen in markets this afternoon has been a reaction uh, to a slightly cooler producer price number out of the United States. This is factory gate inflation. It came in uh, a little below expectation, and it basically kind of adds to this idea that inflation may have peaked and is starting to moderate. Uh, we certainly saw that uh, adding to the uh, to the story uh, after we saw that uh, slightly weaker than anticipating CPI last week. Um, so positive news for equity markets, certainly bleeding through. The Nasdaq up by 2.5% today. The London market, though, under a little bit of pressure. Now, there's a number of reasons for this, one of which is today the pound has been having a very good day. On the cable rate, at least, we're trading 118, nearly 119. Uh, these are unheard of numbers uh, in uh, recent history. Uh, and that has a mechanical effect on bringing down the FTSE 100. But we've also had uh, some poor numbers out of Vodafone today. Ocado's been under a little bit of pressure after a decent run. That's all added to a FTSE 100 that is down today on the continent, the Kakarons and the DAX, both trading high. The DAX is now up by 20% off its lows. So today, another big day of kind of discussing inflation, discussing what is happening with that moderating picture. But it's also a day, uh, I think, of people starting to look forward to what is going to be happening in the fiscal statement and the latest data out of the UK economy. Not looking that clever either. Marcus, good evening. How are you feeling in advance of that fiscal statement, all positive and pumped up? Yeah, good evening. I'm old enough to remember the time when we used to say the reason why FTSE was down was because, because of the yeah. dollar. I mean, wow. I mean, that's just, it's so retro. It's like it's almost like spring-like before. Uh, I'm just going to check what the latest number is on the cable rate because because I, I, am, I, I looked at it earlier and I was genuinely shocked. Yeah, we are well, now it's 118. 60, but it was up on 119. I mean, we're we, going we, to have I, a look we, at we got north of We got north of 120 earlier in the session. Oh, I, it's time to go shopping in the States. I'm telling you, we should all be booking trips to New York. Yes, exactly. Uh, in fact, anywhere around the world, all stuff to come sort of just ridiculously expensive now rather yeah. than impossible. <laughs> I have to say, as we're speaking, it's just dropped fairly precipitously. I'm not sure that there's a connection. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you and you and I talking and, and what's going on. OK, we'll talk more about uh, about what's happening with the economy, what's happening with the data that we've uh, had today uh, in just a moment. Uh, before we do that, let's get some headlines from Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Sources tell Bloomberg Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, is considering a new 40 percent windfall tax on the excess returns of electricity generators as part of his sprawling package of tax rises and spending cuts this week. The tax will replace a plan by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's predecessor, Liz Truss, to instead cap the revenue of renewable and nuclear power producers from next year. Sunak, meanwhile, is urging UK executives to rein in excessive pay awards as he seeks to keep a lid on double-digit inflation. Sunak also sought to defend below-inflation pay settlements awarded to nurses and other National Health Service staff, saying the government had followed in full the advice of independent pay review bodies. 
He says the Royal College of Nursing's demand for a 17% increase is unaffordable. Here's more gloom for UK stocks after the country lost its title of Europe's largest equity market. Bank of America says investors are most bearish on British shares among major regions. B of A's latest survey says even after a partial recovery in British assets following September's mini-budget turmoil, a net 25% of fund managers are underweight UK stocks. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, Marcus, the two of you always very welcome to come shopping in New York. Back to you now in London. <laughs> Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. I still think the balance of uh, favour uh, still lies with the Americans. They come over here. The UK and Europe still looks pretty cheap when you've got the dollar at these kinds of rates. I I'll just take anything at this point. Um, Charlie was talking about what the Prime Minister had to say about the employment data today. Let's, let's actually hear what the Prime Minister said. Of course, I'd, I'd say to all executives to, um, to embrace pay restraint at a time like this and make sure that they are also looking after all their, so all their workers. But I, I mean, I'd say, that all, I'd say that all the time, that of course, in a situation like this, I'm sure executives of most companies will be thinking about pay settlements for senior management, for their workers and making sure that they are fair. That's of, that's of what everyone would expect. And I'm sure that's what most companies are doing. Uh, I have to say, this this obviously follows news that the C-suites, uh, FTSE 100 C-suites uh, executives have been taking pay, taking away bumper pay deals. Um, Marcus, the last time that the Bank of England governor urged wage restraint, he got absolutely battered for it. I, that was a risk, wasn't it? Well, I, I think the way Bailey said it, it was uh, he didn't think. Uh, and ever since then, he's gone out of his way to be almost obsequious to the ridiculous degree the other way around. Um, so it was just sort of misspeak and don't possibly talk about people um, who should get yep. paid less when you're getting paid yourself uh, well over half a million pounds. And then you couldn't actually answer what his actual conversation is, which I think uh, had a field of the fire. But um, and I don't want to say it's sort of sound offensive for this FTSE 100 stuff, but what it's all about is, is that, you know, the last two years with all the stimulus chucked in by the Bank of England, et cetera, uh, lots of companies have been making an awful lot of money. Plus, there's been... And I'm glad it's starting to come out that we were massive price gouging, um, where we're seeing all this sort of talk about inflation here, there, and everywhere. A lot of this is, is companies using the opportunity to mark up margins. As a consequence, they're making very good numbers. They're making lots of profits. As a consequence, the CPU taxes are getting paid lots more. This time next year, it'll be the other way around. So it's just yep. a lagged effect of what happened for all the stimulus. In terms of the employment data, um, that, that we got out today. And I have to say, I experienced it today, sitting on the tarmac uh, at Heathrow for a very long time on an aeroplane that couldn't be taken to its gate because they didn't have the staff to be able to um, to be able to deal with the technology to allow the aircraft to dock, as it were. So it's really frustrating. But we are, we are still in a reasonably hot labour market in the UK. And that adds to the inflationary concerns. And that's what the, the, the data told us today. Because... Unemployment is is still very low, but it's being held down by the fact that a lot of people are out of the labour market. 108,000 more people have become economically inactive in the three months of September. This is the problem at the moment that the UK faces. We'll talk about uh, the, the sort of the state of the UK economy in a moment. But we have a participation problem that is getting worse and worse and worse. 
Yeah, and I think that's part of the thing. We keep on banging onto ourselves, aren't we lucky we've got very low uh, unemployment, which we it's do. Not re- it is not we, real we, unemployment. That, that unemployment number is not real. Well, indeed, it's not. And we've got uh, clearly an overly uh, advantageous uh, universal credit welfare system, which is enabling a lot of people to do uh, perhaps not very much. Um, and indeed, an awful lot of people are on, or you know, perhaps claiming disability benefits and a raft of other stuff. Most, the vast majority, I'm sure, are totally legitimate. But nonetheless, since COVID, there has been uh, this odd effect where people, um, you know, 50 plus are are retiring early, uh, and that's a definite, um, you know, movement. I think that which is clearly um, having some effect. But we've got, though, you know, obviously clear demand for the types of, of work which you know we are scarce on. You know, picking fruit or working in, in uh, as next pointed out, working sort of types of warehouses that uh, that they want to employ people for, but they're not raising their their, their salaries to match it. And that's where I I I, I, I have two mixed views on this because the whole point of of what we're trying to do and what things should happen is that people should be getting paid more. Um, and in some senses, what's happening is that actual wages are doing quite nicely. Um, and they are above what the Bank of England would like it to do. But at the end of the day, you know, we want people to be paid more. And uh, it's still below inflation. So we've not got a wage pay spiral, wage price spiral even. But we do have people getting paid more. And an uplift, in, in, which is long term, very good for the economy, long term, very good for human beings. And and, and also, I think, will, will, will help soften what is otherwise going to be a pretty unpleasant. Do you think the government so, should be raising the minimum wage? Is that a way potentially of solving some of that problem? Well, I think they're going to. Uh, I think that's yep. the easiest direction to travel. I don't mean that. In, 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 I mean, it just it's, it makes it's good politics. It's good for everyone. And within degree, uh, I, I think a bit like, uh, you know, the argument again with pensions. You know, why should we be giving triple ops pensions? Well, the thing is, UK pensions, actual state pensions, are incredibly low compared to most developed world. So, you know, minimum wages going up, pensions staying high. There are good arguments for doing those. I don't necessarily agree fully with the pension side, but certainly on the minimum wage, I think there's a... Do you think it pulls people back into the labour market, though? You you were talking about prices and the company's ability to generate uh, sort of margins and profits, um, decent margins, by extension, dropping down to decent profits. Do you think if we were to, if we do raise wages, if we force companies to raise raise wages, that we will see more people coming back into the labour market? Um, Yes, I think we will. I mean, it's going to take some time. It's going to be um, hard to actually put put your finger on it and actually prove it's X has caused Y. But I think it's logical and you know, within reason. Uh, I'm not saying going crazy here, but I mean, there's, there's, there's some, certain things make some sense. For instance, uh, on council taxes, slightly off topic, but to allow them to increase, you know, uh, council taxes makes sense in this environment within a within a ban. It was t- capped at three percent. Lifting that to five percent isn't going to be the end of the world. It just makes sense. So I think some of this, and particularly if the emphasis of the government is on helping the most needy and the, and the most um, you know, deserving of it, then I think that's logically the way it should be. And I, I have very little time for CEOs like the one from Next saying that they're complaining they can't find the people and they're still paying yeah. minimum wage. Well, you know, go work well, so it out. That's my point. Is if you, if, uh, to my point about Next, if, if you raise the minimum wage, are you effectively forcing, uh, forcing them to do it? You are effectively forcing them to do it. And by extension, actually, they will benefit from it because they'll be able to maybe employ some people. Yes. Um, let's talk a little bit about let's talk about the the fiscal statement that's coming up. The the best way I heard it described earlier on today was this is rather than being a tax and spend budget, this is going to be a tax and no spend budget. But but the critical thing that I'm still trying to figure out is the sequencing of the taxing and the no spending. 
and I'm wondering how this is going to work. Do you think we are... There's an argument for front-loading and there's an argument for back-loading. And I can't quite work out which way Hunt is going to jump on this one. Well, let me help. So I've just written an article on precisely this. Um, He needs to do quite a lot of front-loading because if he doesn't, then the Bank of England doesn't have enough for them to turn around and plug in their numbers. Bear in mind, all the OBR numbers get plugged into the Bank of England model. So he's got to play nice. There's, there's a slight duration mismatch there, though, isn't it? Because the OBR forecasts go longer. Uh, yeah, and the forecast, the forecast window for the bank is, what, three years? Yeah, but that's, that's not the point. The point here is, is that he needs to do something in the next two years to influence yep. the OBR numbers to by then actually make an impact and the Bank of England stop raising interest rates as much or, or, or perhaps stop. Then and only then will the back end numbers start to make sense. And that is particularly because uh, there was a leak in the FT uh, over the weekend basically saying that borrowing in 2027 will have to jump by up to 70 billion extra mathematically because of the cost of interest rate charges, which is all filters back into where the Bank of England rate interest rate is. So, I mean, you know, to help themselves and the rest of the the rest of us uh, over the next five years, it requires to do too much upfront, probably either his party will accept or indeed, most commentators would expect because it will push us into a, into a, a clearly a short-term recession, which will make all the numbers irrelevant anyway because they're all spiralled down. So it's a really difficult one. He's got to get the balance right between short and long. He can push some spending back uh, into the, to the you know, back end of the five-year window. But as I said, that won't spending cuts won't count for the Bank of England, so it will come self-defeating. He's going to have a bit of both because he can't make the numbers add up unless he does some of that sleight of hand. But who believes in a spending cut in three years' time, when it was after the next election, it's it's again it's one yeah. of these things. There's a credibility gap here as well. So he's got to do a bit of everything. He's got to do a bit now, enough to make an impact on Bank of England's models, and equally do enough later on to make the numbers uh, somehow balanced without killing us in the short run. I, I don't I don't know where this leaves the Conservative Party. And again, I'd be interested in your take on this. You've got Jeremy Hunt talking yeah. about inflation-busting pay awards will just fuel inflation. Uh, so he's basically suggesting that people don't get wage rises. You've got Jeremy Hunt coming out with some fairly big tax rises and and spending cuts. Where does that leave the Conservative Party in two years going into the next general election? Well, they're in disarray and they know they're in disarray. And this is the trouble is you've got everyone pulling on. looks like a deal's been done on defence spending. Well, that's got to come or well and good. But that's got to come out of somewhere. Clearly, what they're trying to push back on is is and all the movies is on wage rises, particularly in the public sector. Well, you know, welcome to a, a, a winter of strikes, almost certainly, if that happens. But, you know, clearly, with wage rises at about five and a half, six percent, that's below 10 percent uh, odd inflation now. That's doable. It's too much for the Bank of England, sure. But, you know, it's when um, inflation, as it will drop next year, we're still getting requests for five, yep. six, seven percent wage rising. That's when we've got the real problem. So I think they're trying. Uh, they want to have <laughs> so cake and eat. Is probably a, an old expression now, but they're trying to get everyone else to be parsimonious. Not sure it's going to work. Yeah, I'm hoping we've moved on from cake. Um, not big picture, but just for now. Um, okay, we're going to talk more about the Fed next. Inflation. That conversation continues. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. In the upcoming months, in light of the cumulative tightening we have achieved, I do expect that we will slow the pace of our rate hikes as we approach a sufficiently restrictive stance. At some point next year, 
I expect we will hope, we will hold at a restrictive rate for a while to let monetary policy do its work. That was Patrick Harker of Philadelphia um, giving his view of where he sees the Fed going. Um, a little further south, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta president, Raphael Bostic, today talking about the idea that we're starting to see, quote, glimmers of hope that inflation may be easing. Today, we maybe saw some data to confirm that. Mike McKee always tells me that one data point does not make a trend. Well, maybe two do, uh, because we had CPI last week showing inflation maybe starting to roll over uh, at a consumer level. Today, we've got factory gate prices, PPI, producer price inflation, also showing a similar trend. The real question now is, how quickly does inflation come down? There's a lot of talk about peak inflation, but maybe the better language would be to talk about inflation moderating. It is still very, very high. Uh, and to Harker's point, therefore, we are going to see rates probably continuing to climb, likely to become increasingly restrictive. And then the Fed will stop and sit on those rates for quite a while as they figure out what impact that they've had on the economy. Marcus, what do you make of the latest numbers? I, everybody's getting very excited. We're getting a very big market reaction off this data. CPI huge, oh, well, PPI a little less, but still big reactions. Because it's, it's been coming for two or three months. I mean, I mean, loads of have been looking at this for quite some while and, and, and expecting it and, and knowing this turn's going to come. A uh, couple of reasons behind that. Um, we're starting to see the stuff that shot up, you know, used car prices, stuff like that, uh, you know, starting to, to properly turn around and come down and they're going to carry on coming right back. You can see right in front of you what a used car was you know, a year ago to now, you know, you can see it on, on, on garage forecourt. At the same time, the, the really sticky thing about inflation is shelter, which is the uh, owner equivalent rent. It's it's the thing that takes a long time to build up. And everyone can see that that is going to carry on rising. But it's very, very evident that will turn because you can see what's happening with house prices, lumber prices were the first clear of that uh, and the knock on effect. It, it will take a, a few months to burn through. But surely the Fed, and this is the key point here, the Fed knows this better than all of us. It can't keep telling us like uh, Powell did that, you know, they put in their statement a change to their approach that they they clearly are are, are readying to, to, to slow down. And everyone bought that. And then the presser came in and he told them something completely different. That is dangerously uncommunicative. And I think the market is now... Uh, you know, looking at Powell and going, you are going to have to change it in your next. Um, we we know why you're trying to trying to fall us into keeping uh, financial conditions tight because ironically, what's happened but is that, that yeah, what that's his problem. Happened, which is the stock market's they, gone up. He wants the stock market to stay down and bond market yields to stay high for a little bit longer, so we really can say that they properly got a handle on on getting down inflation. Unfortunately, the world doesn't work like that. We can see straight through him. And I don't think the Fed will be doing seventy five. They'll be doing 50, and I think the same for the Bank of England, and uh, I hope also the ECB. And I think next year, we're only be going to go on, to, uh, I think, very quickly on a pause. I, it will not be long, I think, before we start, start to talk about rate cuts. So how, this, is the, this is the bit that I can't figure out. How does the Fed solve the problem of, and this is particularly true in the United States, of equity markets rising rapidly on any indication of dovishness and that effectively undoing any of the policy that they're trying to tighten. And, and this is because it's such a big transmission mechanism in the United States. And, I, and I'm wondering how they solve that problem. As you say, it's a communica- it is a communication issue. 
But if, if, if power comes out and sounds dovish, the, the equity market's going to the moon. Yeah, but this, the, the problem is it's themselves. You know, they've overstimulated so massively. And yeah, but that's in the rearview mirror. But, how do they fix that? Yeah, well, no, I'm sorry. That's the point. The point is, is that everyone knows what how they act and how they react. And they can see right in front of them with the housing market in particular, what's yep. coming down the pipe for the US. It is recession like the rest of us already in. And, you know, the US are not going to miss this. It's just a lag. And the point is, is that the Fed are at risk of overdoing it. And some of the rhetoric out of Powell, who's been brilliant up to now. I'm a big fan of Powell compared to most central bank heads. You know, he just, I think, overdid it in his last press conference because he got, did it the, the wrong way around, I think, in June, July. Uh, and he's sort of ever since then, he's been super hawkish. But you can only be super hawkish if people believe you. And I don't think they do believe the Fed is now going to do 75 Zoom anymore. I think that's gone. These big no, rate I, I, hikes yeah. were too harsh and too quick. I think they've overdone But that's it not the, that's not the debate. The the 50-75 debate isn't where the debate is anymore. The, the debate is now how high do ultimately rates have to go. It's not about how high do they go next time. It's about high, how high do they ultimately go. And a lot lower. And that's the point, is they're trying to tell us it's going up in the, in the mid-fives. And it's just not. So you know, we can see it's not happening. I don't think the UK will get up anywhere close to four. And I don't think that even the, the, the I don't think the European uh, Central Bank again anywhere near close to two and a half or three. But the point is, is that th there has to be some realization here. Is that they've they've whacked in super quick uh, tightening. They're yeah. tightening not just on interest rates, but also on quantitative tightening and or in the European Central Bank by this Teltro uh, change of the rules How and and ripping out a, a trillion worth of liquidity. This they're all doing it at the same time. This is the other thing. There's a lag fact which is going to hit the, the economies hard, yeah. and it's they're all doing it at the same time. And that's what I think they don't understand. So they, and they, well, they do understand it, and we understand it. They're just not telling us. That's all. But they, how does the Fed change policy if inflation is still above 2%? Oh, they have to. I mean, <laughs> they don't change policy, but, you know, but by the time inflation headline... Uh, or on low, target to hit 2%. Yeah. Then they're going to just knock us straight into, into, the, into the earth at 1,000 miles per hour. And, and you know, I, I really don't think that the Fed is going to do that and no one believes they're going to, the Fed's going to do that so the question is is where do they get some credibility back by by saying look guys we're going to do x by y by z it, it, it's telling us the truth and telling exactly what they're going to do which of course they don't like doing but that's the point they this this uh due diligence uh sorry you know doing it by uh data dependence market uh meeting by meeting stuff can only work so well for them because people will, will make up their own minds if they can't have it both ways either one or the other and i think they've gone of giving a lots and lots of forward guidance to realise it wasn't working for them, I think that they're going to have to get back to a bit more clear forward guidance, unfortunately. Okay, up next, we're going to talk crypto, we're going to talk Credit Suisse, we're going to talk 13F. Charlie Bassett is going to be joining us. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele not in the show this evening. She's got a day off, but we have Marcus Ashworth with us, which is fantastic because um, we've got still got much to talk about. Quick update on where we sit with the markets. Um, the s and is up by 1.3% stateside right now, just north of 4,000, 4,007. Uh, European stocks generally well bid. The pound under a little bit of pressure. Sorry, the FTSE under a little bit of pressure today. Vodafone rolling over. Uh, Ocado having a fairly tough day. But one of the other factors what I want to talk about is that we have a a dollar that is under pressure. 
So I'm looking at the screen in front of me um, and, and it's across the board. The Kiwi dollar is up by 1.25% against the dollar. The Aussie dollar is up by 1%. The British pound is up by 1% against the US dollar. We got north of 120 earlier on. This is exciting and heady territory. Uh, the British pound, though, <laughs> currently trading on the cable rate of 118.76. Um, and the euro uh, up north of, of 103, which, is, again, is a really big level uh, for the euro as well. Marcus, if the dollar turns, this is a really big deal. Just walk us through the significance of, of what that means. Well, I, mean, I think it has turned, uh, and that, that's the key, I think, to everyone's uh, relief uh, this side of the pond in the sense of uh, a euro above parity. Uh, as we said, uh, cable sterling up to, you know, Sort of around 1.2, which is, you know, still still cheap in in the greater context, but not sort of uh, quite where we got down to with the, the the quasi nightmare, which we got down to 103, 104 areas. So, uh, emerging markets in a miles better place. Um, you know, it follows bond yields in the U.S. Treasury are, are are off their highs. You know, we've got a 10-year yield at 3.8, which is significantly lower than it was. That's filtered through to everything. You know, all the bond yields across the rest of the world. Are, are, are substantially lower than they were. Um, a weaker dollar is is basically very good uh, for everyone this time around. Normally, a weaker dollar would be bad for the yeah. yen and for the euro because they're the big exporters. But because we've got a, a fuel, oil, energy crisis, priced in dollars, massive importers of fuels, priced in dollars. Yeah. This time around, put simply, weak dollar equals great news for pretty much everyone actually. Um, it's hard to find who you know who, who would benefit from a stronger dollar, uh, other than the people who just, understandably, for the last year and a bit, have just whacked all their uh, spare assets into the dollar and forgotten about it. Now they might have to think about um, perhaps reallocating back the, to, yep. to the rest of the world. I, I think you know it's not overdo it. The dollar will have a correction here, go back up again a bit. But I think the tide looks like it's uh, at least for the short to medium term that the dollar is going to continue to be a bit weaker, which is because, as we say in CPI. We can see the economy starting to turn down in the U.S., and that's all it took. It's the relative difference between U.S. Yep. super strength, which was the smile and everything it went bad, everything else horrible in the rest of the world, everything benefited the dollar. Now it's starting to come a little bit more balanced. Can't believe it. Can't believe I saw 120 earlier on. Uh, we'll come back and talk about some of those trades that Marcus was just mentioning in just a moment. We've had 13 F filings in the States. Uh, Shinali Basak is going to be joining us to talk about those. Um, sounds complicated, but it's a, a really useful insight into what is happening uh, with, with big investors' positions. But before we do all of that with Shinali, let's get some headlines with Charlie Pallet. I thank you very much, uh, Guy and Marcus. Prime Minister Sushi Rishi Sunak has given his strongest hint yet that he will protect UK pensioners against the impact of soaring inflation when his government sets out its tax and spending plans on Thursday. Sunak said he has a track record of caring about pensioners dating from his time as Chancellor of the Exchequer. The new Prime Minister has faced political pressure to stick to the so-called triple lock on state pensions, meaning payments rise yearly in line with the highest of three numbers, inflation, average earnings, or 2.5%. A barrage of missiles attacks targeting Kyiv and other locations across Ukraine, hitting civilians and critical infrastructure in what authorities have called the broadest such assault since Russia invaded the country back in February. Kyiv's mayor says at least one person was killed as residential buildings were hit. Earnings for giant supertankers hauling crude across the globe surpassed $85,000 a day, about 72,000 pounds a day for the first time in two and a half years as imminent sanctions on 
on Russian oil exports boost the distances that oil tankers have to sail. That is the latest from the news desk. Uh, Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Shanali Basag also joining us in New York. Um, Shanali has been sifting through what are called 13F filings. These are filings basically from large investors about what they've been buying and what they've been selling. They give us a useful insight uh, into what these guys are up to. Shanali, just walk us through what, what we've learned out of these 13Fs. We've been through a hugely turbulent period. What's the big takeaway? Uh, people are still worried out there, even though there was a little bit of buying on the margins. I messaged one large fund manager and asked, what's the buying about? Have you been changing your bearish view? And the manager said, no, I haven't. I'm not yet ready to be short again, but I do think that the low hasn't hit. So you'll see that in the filings themselves. You saw some really big names start to buy at scale. Think Berkshire Hathaway has been buying at all year. Stan Druckenmiller's Duquesne. Him buying is very, very interesting because as we know, he's been bearish all year. Uh, Lee Ainsley at Maverick once described to me as a lar- from a large fund manager as one of the best traders on Wall Street because of the ability to be tactical. Again, buying at some scale. But you do have a lot of funds that were really burned. Think Tiger Global, where the number of new positions only amounted to five. And that's the type of fund that is down super significantly on the year. So you can tell that this little bounce back rally, I'll put uh, I'll put it in Mike Wilson's words, not my own. Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley is saying this kind of rally can rip your face off. So <laughs> people are not really excited about engaging in this uh, bear market bounce. So, Shanali, that, to my mind, is the perfect uh, example of that a low is in because you've got people in denial. You've got lots of cash on the sidelines. You've got uh, fund managers essentially forced to buy. You've got clearly people like Tyler Global who've been punting their money and all the weird and wonderful stuff have got deservedly burnt. And everyone's learned from that that, uh, you know, that they have, the world hasn't been reinvented in a different way. And therefore, actual value stocks, semi-boring stuff, might be paying a dividend, uh, could be attractive again. And, and this this could, could therefore perpetuate into a, a, into a lovely little short squeeze, which keeps going on and on. Is that is that too bullish of you? I, the, I mean, <laughs> listen, there's two things going on. One, it's that these filings only bring you through the end of September. And the risk appetite, short squeeze, uh, wow. Like, you know, people are worried. People are scared to be short in this market. And they're getting whipsawed. There's some great reporting on the terminal now that comes out of the prime brokerages that show you what a big role the quants are playing in this kind of market, momentum trading as well. So to your point about getting squeezed in this market, the swings are just more drastic than what typical active managers are used to. And if you look at the what, what you know what's happening in terms of the fund by fund data, if you look at the Bloomberg terminal data across all hedge funds, CTAs are up 10%. So if you're a momentum trader here, you are feeling the benefit of the swings in both directions. But if you are just a plain old equity long short manager, you're down 12% this year to date through the end of October. 12%. 18% yeah, yeah. if you're long only. So, yeah, yeah, people are getting squeezed and squeezed hard. Well, count yourself lucky if you're in dollars um, because the rest of the world was not in dollars. I've had it even worse. But uh, to your point on that, I mean, and that's what's going to back up, is that since these filings were filed, S&P's up 10%. This is a short squeeze. And the question is, is, is because people have been underweight. They've never, the sentiment's never been more bearish. 
and we're up 10%. So what does that tell you? It tells you that everyone's got their mindset yep. on. Equities are not the, the place to be. Something I wonder, all of a sudden, they're forced. To your point here, I heard Guy have this conversation earlier with one of the managers on TV. Credit is also down now this year. So where do you go to hide? Yeah. You have been hiding oh. in the dollar, but that doesn't work anymore because maybe the dollar's turned. Shinali, great stuff, as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg, Shinali, Basak. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So let's talk crypto, an industry which has apparently been, quote, cut to ribbons this year. This according to Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, he was speaking at the Bloomberg New Energy Forum. His scribe bridge capital, of course, has been very much caught up uh, in the implosion of FTX over the last few days. Um, we spoke to him a little early. We talked to him about maybe the investment mistakes that have been made involving Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. Um, and Scaramucci was basically saying it's tough to protect oneself from some types of, quote, misrepresentation. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. I don't want to revise history. I want to talk about it before the fact and then after the fact. So uh, I met Sam through a mutual friend. I had an investment in something called Ledger X, where I was one of the seed investors, which was a crypto derivatives exchange that had some licenses that were very important in the United States. And so I made a connection to Sam Bankman-Fried to that group. He ended up buying that group and it looked like a great transaction for everybody. And prior to this past week, they seemed very happy together. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it dovetailed into a discussion about doing a sponsorship for the SALT conference. And so as you guys know, we have a hedge fund conference that we sort of morphed slightly into a crypto event and Sam wanted to be the lead sponsor. So sort of like salt FTX, if you will. And so we negotiated a transaction with him, which was a three year deal. John, I think it was a three year deal. Um, and so we did the conference at the Javits Center successfully. And then we made a decision to do a conference with him in the Bahamas uh, because that's where his uh, FTX International was based. That was, I think, a very successful event, uh, which led to me having a lunch with him over the summer. And so I met with Sam in August in the Bahamas, and he said, listen, I'm interested in buying the company. And I the was, whole company. The, the whole time. company. I was, I was hesitant to do that. I'm 58 years old. Spent my life's work. I said, listen, um, why don't we start slower than that, smaller than that, and I would probably need cash as opposed to stock because of my age and sort of I want to pay out some of my partners that would be there with me. So we negotiated from August 6th to the day that it closed on September 7th, a transaction. He bought 30% of the company, um, wired us the money. He did ask me to put $10 million of the proceeds into the FTT token, which I thought was in the spirit of the committee of the partnership. I didn't think that it was a big deal at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I did that. And then um, we went to the Middle East. Um, FII was a few weeks ago, probably 15, 16 days ago. And when you say you went to the Middle East, you, you hosted him. You were introducing I him did. to he was raising He was raising capital. Um, his narrative, which was unfortunately made up, but his narrative was that he had a billion in cash. He wanted to raise another billion. He was, wanted to fortify his businesses. And he was buying distressed and crypto sort of shore up the industry uh, and so we embarked upon a Middle East trip to Riyadh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi 
And listen, I've been doing this longer than Sam has been alive, and so I have a lot of relationships over there, and I availed him to a lot of those relationships. And I think what happened, frankly, is he said something about CZ, the founder of Binance, in possibly one or two of those meetings. It got back to CZ. He got super upset about it and said, okay, we're in a divorce. We're not going to make love. That was the Twitter comments, right? And he hit him with about $500 million worth of FTT tokens. And I don't think Sam could uh, keep that token at a level uh, that would support all of the infrastructure and the leverage that he had on his balance sheet. And so we saw a collapse. So weirdly, the association with us and the trip to the Middle East sort of tipped the first domino a lot earlier than maybe that domino would have been tipped otherwise. The dominoes have certainly been falling since then. Anthony Scaramucci <laughs> talking about uh, what is happening, Marcus, in the crypto space. The mooch. The mooch. Originally, the mooch worked for Donald Trump. The mooch is now yeah. not not a fan of Donald Trump at all. Uh, and he tried to sell himself to Chinese. He's, he's got some bad luck in choosing people he mixes with. Absolutely. Talking of Trump. We apparently are going to get a big announcement later this evening. We'll talk more about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So Donald Trump, we understand, is going to make a, quote, very big announcement this evening at 9 p.m. Eastern time, New York time, or as it will be, Mar-a-Lago time. Uh, the expectation is that he will announce a third run at the White House. He succeeded with one of those. He's failed with one of those, and he wants to have another go now. This despite the midterm elections proving to be very bad for candidates that were backed by Donald Trump. And many within the Republican Party are concerned about this very big announcement. Mark Niquette joins us now to discuss this, uh, a political reporter joining us in the US. Mark, walk us through what we should expect this evening. What does a very big announcement look like from Donald Trump? Well, his advisors are telling us that we can expect him to announce he's going to make a third run for the White House. Uh, he, he sort of teased this before the midterm elections in the United States, saying he would have a very big announcement on Tuesday tonight. Um, and we're at uh, his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida, um, and we're expecting him to announce he's running for president again. Wow. Wow. Um... Is there much uh, pushback, Mike, with regard to basically the, the simple situation whereby some of his candidates didn't do so well, though some did, to be fair. Uh, I mean, is this going to get uh, the same uh, amount of, of oomph that he would have wanted? Because the one thing about Trump is he does seem to have that ability to to, to whip up uh, and get voter engagement, which most other politicians cannot reach. Um, is this going to be a, a, a similar sort of big hurrah or was this do we got the, all the signs of this going a bit fucked well we're going to find out i mean before the midterm elections the expectation was that you know republicans would do very well uh they're running in, in midterm elections that historically are favorable to the party out of power in the white house um inflation was running high president joe biden's little had low approval ratings and um i think uh former president trump expected that uh he would be able to announce he's running again sort of on the wave of 
sweeping Republican victories that he could take credit for because he endorsed yeah. candidates up and down the ballot. Um, and that obviously didn't work out. Uh, I think the thought was that Trump could make this announcement and it would discourage you know, potential rivals from even getting into the race because he would have shown his dominance in the GOP. Um, that hasn't happened. Yeah. A lot of his candidates failed in the midterms. And he's sort of announcing uh, at, a, at a moment of weakness. You know, we have uh, all kinds of calls from within the Republican Party and, and the donor class suggesting it's time for the Republican Party to move on from Donald Trump and embrace uh, another a standard bearer like uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who supports Trump's policies but doesn't have the same political baggage. Yeah, it was interesting to hear Ken Griffin talking about this a little bit earlier, describing him as a three times loser um, in terms of his political his political um, um, uh, wins and lo- losses. Uh, sorry, the words went away from me there. Let's let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the tactics that, that Trump is employing here. Why is ta- why is he going before people like Pence, who I think was on TV last night talking about his book, DeSantis, uh, and other candidates have announced? Why does he want to go early in this process? The original plan was to announce early and uh, essentially clear the field. Uh, no one would be willing to take on Trump as an announced candidate. Uh, and also, I think there's some in Trump's orbit who think that if he's a uh, a federal candidate, a candidate for president, it would make it harder to indict him on uh, charges with the multiple state wow, and federal yeah, okay. investigations he faces, um, you know, regarding uh, the removal of classified documents from the White House and his role in efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Um, uh, but again, that, you know, that hasn't happened. We, we, we now find ourselves in a period where uh, Trump looks to be, you know, politically weak, um, or at least a weaker point that he's been in his political career after, you know, Republicans had a very disappointing showing in the, the U.S. midterm elections. Um, so now we're, we're going to have to see, you know, if, if, you know, whether and when, you know, these potential challengers uh, get in the race against Trump. Um, um, the expectation is uh, we won't see sort of any immediate reaction from the potential rivals. We'll kind of wait to see you know, how this announcement plays and, and what happens with these investigations against Trump um, before they decide, you know, whether to get in the race and challenge him. So, uh, I mean, a couple of quick questions. Okay, you've answered in, in some sense already is that uh, does Trump's uh, sort of early announcement bring in DeSantis and uh, and maybe a few others, Pence, et cetera? Um, well, I guess we just don't know on that one, likewise on the Democrat side. But the key thing is if this doesn't work out for uh, Trump, will he? What do you think the odds are he runs as, as a third party um, candidate? You know, if, if for whatever reason he doesn't get the Republican nomination, and you know, clearly they say it's DeSantis, and then he decides to do, um, you know, I suppose he's completely thing. bust the right. Yeah, that's that's been talked about, and it's I guess something potentially down the road, but uh, I think it'd be far down the road. We're going to have to see what happens. I mean, normally in in a before a presidential election year, you know, candidates wait until after the holidays uh, in the first of the year uh, to, to declare their intentions, sometimes deep into the year before the election, because we don't actually have voting starting until um, early in 2024. Um, so I think we're going to have to tweet, just wait and see, you know, what the response is to, to, to Trump's uh, announcement here and, you know, how 
sort of the fallout from the, the U.S. midterms, um, you know, plays out. You know, if Trump continues to be blamed for, um, you know, the, the Republican disappointment in the midterms, or if he kind of helps, you know, rehabilitate himself uh, politically, as he's done when he's faced other potential, um, you know, crippling um, controversies. Yeah. Um, he's he's got a sort of, sort of a solid core base of supporters who have stood by him no matter what and have rallied behind him when he looks like he's on the ropes. Mark, we'll look forward to the coverage a little bit later on. Thank you very much indeed for joining us from Mar-a-Lago. As I say, the announcement coming at 9 p.m. Eastern time tonight. U.S. politics certainly paying attention to that story. Um, Let's just wrap things up. Quick look at uh, where we are with U.S. markets right now. Uh, The dollar on the back foot, equities on the front foot, the Nasdaq up by 2.1%, the S&P up by 1.2%, trading at 4,004. From Marcus and myself, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, We will be back to do it all again tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. 